in this chapter, we're going to only cover uh, verses 1 to 12 because there is so much going on in the judgment of the hail that I can't fit it all into one sermon. And so today we're going to cover the judgment on the livestock dying, the pestilence, and the judgment of the boils, the fifth and sixth plagues. And uh, Lord willing, um, in a couple of weeks, we'll come back to the hail and all that the Lord is doing in that. So please follow along as I read Exodus 9, starting in verse 1. I'm going to continue to use the word Yahweh in place of the word Lord when it is in all caps. Then Yahweh said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of Yahweh will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And Yahweh set a time saying, tomorrow Yahweh will do this thing in the land. And the next day Yahweh did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Take handful, handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had spoken to Moses. Let's pray. Father, attend to the reading and preaching of your word. Give both speaker and listener alike your grace to hear, to understand, and to appropriate your great truths herein. That we would understand you, Lord, as a Lord of heaven and earth, a Lord in whom there is no threat against your kingdom. And even when kings would gather themselves together to usurp your throne, you put them down and you remain. And you have set your son in Zion, and it is he who reigns and no one else. Glorify yourself, we pray this morning. Amen. Well, given the, the, the shortness of these plagues and a repeated mention of Pharaoh's heart, I thought it'd be appropriate to ask ourselves the question whether we consider ourselves free people. Are you a free person? 
And when you ask yourself the question, are you a free person, what comes to mind? In a group like this, it might be possible that you might start thinking about the freedom of the will and divine determinism. But putting aside some mystery, are you free? Is anybody free? What factors would you say must come into understanding and determine whether you are free or not? We might think you're free because the Bill of Rights, the Constitution. You might think you're free because you have some financial ability to spend, choose, buy things that you want to. You might think you're free because you're retired. You can do, go wherever you want. What defines freedom? We're going to find out today that even the most powerful men in the world still are not free if they're not in Christ. The Son makes you free. And you will be free indeed. The relationship a sinner has with Jesus Christ determines whether someone is free or not. We have all other levels of freedom, choices, of whatever it could be. Last night, we were talking about where we're going to go for ice cream. We have choices, Annie's. Big Chill, Dairy Queen, whatever it may be, we're free to choose. But at the core of our being, what, what really matters about being free is whether we are in Jesus Christ or if we're outside of Jesus Christ. And that trumps everything. That trumps everything. That is the defining factor of whether you are free. You might be in Christ and might not think you're free. You might be outside of Christ and think you're very free. We've been reading about a man who is the archetype man, Pharaoh. And God has consistently spoken to his heart about letting his people go and the more he refuses, the more we realize, even if he will realize later, he's not free. Pharaoh stands, we've, we've seen Yahweh come against Egypt as Yahweh is waging war against the gods of Egypt and just like knocking them down like dominoes, one after another, right? Not only is Pharaoh in that battle between the gods of the world and the one and true living God. But Pharaoh also stands as the archetype person, the person Andy was talking about in those verses he used. The man or the woman in sin. The man or woman in sin is not a free person. In fact, the more someone desires to be king, 
the more they are actually the greater slave. And he used the word boss. Whether you want to be king, boss, pharaoh, we have seen time and time again, and what I want to camp about, camp out on this, these couple of plagues here is Pharaoh, though he thinks he is most free, most in charge, most sovereign, most powerful, most an embodiment of the gods, is the greatest slave in the world because he refuses to acknowledge Yahweh is Lord. He refuses to acknowledge that Yahweh is over him. And that determines whether someone is free or not. It's not the freedom of choice, free will, constitution, financial state. It's simply this. Will someone yield to Yahweh and receive new life and free life? Or will they not and refuse and remain a slave? So what I want to do actually this morning is a little different. I want to just summarize an exposition of verses 1 to 12 and make two quick, I can't say quick, that's a preacher's way of lying, uh, two, two points of application. Yes. So Moses has come in to Pharaoh's court yet again. He has met Pharaoh at the water. He's met him in his court. He's met him all over. Again, he's going into his courtroom and he tells Pharaoh what Yahweh says, which is, let my people go. If you refuse to hold them, if you refuse to let them go and you remain to hold them, the hand of the Lord will come upon you with a very severe plague and all your flocks, sheep, donkey, camels, horses, cattle, livestock, dead. That, that's the threat. So what is this, what is this uh, pestilence? What is this plague? Well, it is, a, it is some biological plague upon the work and the, the, work, the, the workforce and the labor of Israel, uh, of Egypt. Egypt won't be able to do much if all their food is dead and all the animals which they use to harvest crops are dead. They would be incapacitated as a nation, completely shut down. You may think if an equal plague in our day were to hit our land, what would it be like? Imagine all the roads, highways, freeways, planes, trains, and automobiles were completely done away with. How would anything get done? How would food get delivered? How would, how, how would you go to work? How would you do any of these things? We would be completely incapacitated as a nation. And so this is the threat that Yahweh is leveling against Pharaoh here. It, this could be a threat against Apis, the Egyptian bull god, or it could be simply God showing whether it comes from the water, whether it comes from the air, or whether it comes from the land. He has sovereignty over all life. The water, the air, the land, we see those 
levels of creatures in the opening chapters of Genesis all throughout the Old Testament. The air, the earth, and the depths, the water, all creation belongs to Yahweh. And he is moving these creatures, gnats, mosquitoes, bugs, frogs, livestock, whatever, where he wills. And he has complete control over them. This is described as a very severe plague. They are growing in intensity so that the last one will be utterly, utter, utterly decimate the nation. And there is a bit of play on words here with verses two and three. Yahweh tells Pharaoh through Moses, if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, the hand of the Lord will fall upon you with a very severe plague. So Pharaoh is pictured as holding Israel in place, refusing to let them go, white knuckling them. And if you want to still hold them, Yahweh will bring his hand upon you. Which is God. God to strike a chord with Pharaoh and the magicians knowing that they just ad admitted and attributed the powerful plague of the gnats by the finger of God. So there's this play on words here that if you want to continue to hold them, the Lord will put his hand on you. I know that has a different euphemism today than then, but it was essentially the same. He will smite you. And the result of holding them will be a severe plague where all these donkeys, cattle, camels, and herds die. Which is maybe owing to a point which we will see in the future of how maybe Israel comes out with silver and gold. You'll know that uh, as Israel leaves, the Egyptians are giving them possessions, gold, silver, valuable things. Not only were they giving them to them, it very could also well have been that due to this great plague of all these creatures dying, they needed to trade. And that Egypt had nothing. And the closest nation they could trade with was the very nation they wanted to keep in slavery. And so they would have to trade with either Cush or those around them or Israelites. We don't know that for sure, but we do know that this was a great, great blow to the nation. Now, we do have to pause for a second and, and see what's going on here. Is there contradiction here? Okay. It says very clearly that in verse 6, all the livestock of the Egyptians died. It, the, the word livestock there is just referring to cattle, but it could also summarize the horses, the donkeys, camels, and herds and flocks. But it says all the livestock of the Egyptians died. The only problem is, is there's beasts around for the boils. There are livestock out in the field in the hail plague, and there are livestock that will die in the firstborn death plague. Um, so what is going on here? We know it's not a matter of order because at some point, no matter how you order the plagues, if you're going to take it that literally, they're all going to be dead. 
I think what is most likely happening here is that there is a typical Hebrew hyperbole. Not that every single livestock died, but that such an abundance of livestock died, it was as if they were all dead. Or we could just paraphrase it in a way of, they were, they were dead everywhere. Everywhere I looked, they were dead. Not that every single one died, but all sorts and such a uh, volume had died, they were they are all died. So this is, this, is the, this is the blow against Egypt. And then after this, Pharaoh hardens his heart in verse 7. And then the boils come. And we know, now there have been various things in this account where we could say, okay, that might have some natural cause and effect, you know, the frogs to the, to the gnats, the flies or whatnot. But here again, even though we've kind of dealt with that, here we know a definitively supernatural act is happening. No one throws soot from a fireplace into the air and boils break out on everybody in the land of Egypt. But the, the supernatural evidence is, is clear on here that, that God alone is doing this. If the magicians or Pharaoh or others will give some credence to a natural, naturalistic explanation, surely with the boils, there's no other cause other than divine intervention. And of course, these boils fall upon the magicians. They couldn't stand before Moses. And Yahweh hardens his heart. We see again something we saw last week that this does not fall on Egypt, on Israel. God's people, just with the flies, as with the pestilence, don't face God's judgment. God's people are not under God's judgment. To be one of God's people is inherently to mean you are out of judgment. If the pestilence doesn't fall on them, the hail and the next plagues won't fall on them either. Now, just a couple points of application here. Having summarized this, I want to just camp out on one word in verse 7, just for the rest of our time, where it says, The heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. There are three words throughout this account of Exodus, of the judgments. There are three words where Moses is using what we would say is the same English word for Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Two of them are pretty much synonymous. And that is Yahweh hardening Pharaoh's heart in a way in which he's strengthening Pharaoh's resolve to keep them in place. Okay, we've talked about that in the past. The word used here, and it has been used elsewhere, but focus on it here, is not that word. It's actually just as fairly translated as the heart of Pharaoh was heavy. Some of yours actually might have that. The heart of Pharaoh was heavy. A heavy heart is very important to consider. 
the fact that we talk about anything about a heart is important to consider because from the heart flows all of life. What I want to say is a heavy heart is a heart that responds wrongly to God. A heavy heart is a heart that responds wrongly to God. That's the Hebrew understanding. But in God's providence, he is both encouraging Pharaoh, encouraging Moses and communicating to Pharaoh with one same word, that this heart of Pharaoh was heavy. In Egyptian understanding, a heavy heart would call to mind a person's sinfulness. A heavy heart points out the, the sinfulness of that heart. Egyptian religious texts speak of the heart as the representation of a person's basic essence, which is not actually far from biblical truth. It is a place where a person's guilt and innocence, motives and general righteousness are to be found. And in Egyptian mythology, as Pharaoh's understanding this, in Egyptian mythology, when someone dies, the gods of Egypt weigh the heart in scales with a feather in one and the heart of the deceased in the other. So when we're reading that Pharaoh's heart is heavy, we're reading that Yahweh is pronouncing Pharaoh as in the wrong, judged justly, and not judged by Egyptian gods, but judged by the God. Well, we'll see later, after the hail plague, that Pharaoh says afterwards, this time I have sinned. Yahweh is in the right, or Yahweh is righteous. I and my people are in the wrong. That is a huge, huge confession because in Egyptian mythology, a heavy heart for a pharaoh was an oxymoron. The, the pharaoh was the embodiment of the gods and he was a pure, sinless individual. He was a pure person, a divine manifestation of the gods, and one whose sovereignty over the whole land was predicated upon the purity of his heart. So if his heart was foul and heavy and sinful, he would be taken away from ruling over his people. Is that not what the Lord is doing? The Lord is speaking in a way in which both Moses and Pharaoh get it, even though they are coming from different contexts. Pharaoh is having his heart judged by Yahweh, not by Egyptian gods, and he is found in the scales of Egyptian uh, weights. His heart is heavy, and he is guilty. The... Um, the Hebrew understanding is, even though there is some level of 
correctness to the Egyptian understanding of the heart and, and actually a very common way Americans just view the heart. If my heart is good enough, I'll be okay in the end, right? Right? But the Hebrew concept of a heavy heart is different. The Hebrew con- concept is that a heavy heart is a heart that doesn't function as it's made to. It's broken. It's been created to respond to God in appropriate way of God's revelation to it. And so a heavy heart is a broken heart. It is a malfunctioning heart. It is a heart that is not responding and working in the way it should. We have all been in situations where we talk to someone and they're in a, they're in a pinch and they're not thinking right. And you can hear it in their voice. You can hear in the way they reason. You can hear in the way they're attacking others and they're defending themselves and whatever. They're not thinking rightly. They have a broken heart. They have a heart that's malfunctioning. God has made the heart so that it would respond appropriately to God's revelation. If God would reveal himself as terrifying and awful, and just gloriously beautiful where we would shriek in fear, we should respond with fear. That would be the appropriate way a rightly functioning heart would work. If God shows himself a savior, a creator, a redeemer, a rightly functioning heart would respond with thanksgiving, with joy, with gratitude, a wrongly functioning heart sees God crooked, off, evil. And so when we hear that Pharaoh has a heavy heart, why is he not letting the people go? Because he sees the threats of Yahweh and accounts them as nothing. Warning signs are supposed to warn. (laughs) If a warning sign, put it this way, if you're driving along and you're going down stampede and the light is red and you interpret the light as floor it, you you have a heavy heart. You have just understood that warning very wrongly. You put yourself in danger and everyone else. And, you, and, and I guess you did just stampede down through the intersection. God reveals himself so that we would respond appropriately. Okay? God has been revealing himself to Pharaoh and he is not responding appropriately. Even when he has, in the previous chapter, said to Moses, okay, I give up, mercy, uncle, go, Moses, and get these frogs out of here, or go, Moses, and get these flies out of here. He's not truly repentant. He's not truly sorrowful, because even after the hail, Moses says, I know that you do not yet fear Yahweh. You're doing this just because you hate the pain of consequence, right? 
So, Mo, so Pharaoh has a heavy heart. And I, I return to the simple point I was making earlier. Pharaoh is the archetype person, the archetype sinner. All of us have a heavy heart apart from Christ. Any time anyone comes into this world, they are born with a crookedness in their heart. And they respond to God's goodness with either, eh, whatever, or that's unfair, or whatever it may be. We don't respond to God appropriately. What happens when Isaiah sees God? What happens when John sees God? What happens when these various individuals, Moses, see God? They respond rightly and (laughs) say, you are great, O Lord. (laughs) That is a rightly functioning heart. You might want to call it a light heart. A heavy heart would say, that vision of God is nothing. That resurrection of Christ doesn't mean anything. So we are all burdened with a heavy heart, but those who come to Christ have that heavy heart changed so that we begin to see God aright. And what, how God is in himself, we begin to see as actually someone worth treasuring and loving and living for and even dying for. And he takes out that, that heavy heart and he puts a new heart in, a heart that is moldable, pliable, and teachable. Not pliable in the pilgrim progress kind of way, the hypocrite kind of way, but pliable in a, in a good Play-Doh way. Form it, do whatever you want with it, right? And that's the kind of heart we, the Christian has. Now, we are not perfect, and we still have seasons of heaviness of heart. But heavy heart doesn't mean a sad heart, a contrite heart. A heavy heart, kabod in Hebrew, means a twisted, wrongly functioning heart. Secondly, a heart which responds wrongly to God is not only in a heavy heart, it is also an enslaved heart. A heart that responds wrongly to God is an enslaved heart. Again, go back to the introduction. What is true freedom? What is true freedom? Freedom is being redeemed by the blood of Christ from sin and having the Son of God set you free. If you have Christ, you could be in a shipping container in North Korea being beaten and you're the most free person in the world. You could be Pharaoh, run the whole known world. But if you're outside of Christ, you're a slave because you are a slave to your own heart. In typical English uh, thinking, Greek thinking, decision-making, choosing, comes from the mind. I'm going to think about something and then make a decision based on it. The faculty of choosing, the faculty of the will is a mind thing. Not so with the Hebrews. The faculty of choosing was in the heart. 
why does that matter? It's heart or mind. We almost use them synonymously, and, and generally that's fine. But for the Hebrews, if the faculty, if the heart contained choosing, the, the heart also contained thinking and feeling. So when a heart is heavy and it's malfunctioning, it's not only choosing wrongly, it's thinking wrongly, and it's feeling wrongly. So that everything in processing what God says is objectively good comes to an, a, a screwed up source. The window is shattered and broken and all looks disfigured. The heart is the center of the emotions, the center of thinking, and the center of choosing in the Bible. And if the heart then is crooked, everything comes out as crooked. If a spring is muddy, everything downstream is muddy. So when God says something is great, a heavy heart is going to think, that's not that great. Made the world in six days, big deal. Or if God says something is good, heavy heart is going to say, no, actually, it's not good. God says man and woman should make up a marriage. Heavy heart says, I disagree. Two men make up a marriage. That's good. That's a heavy heart. It's a wrongly functioning heart. Not only thinks wrongly, it feels wrongly. What God says is beautiful and should invoke delight and love, we would be numb to. If God says, I have painted the sky and this is beautiful, it's very good, and we look at creation and say, ah, actually the Grand Canyon's not that grand, or, you know, Victoria Falls isn't that high. It's feeling wrong. Everybody can attest to this. We can all attest to this. Like, I know in my heart that that should be beautiful, but I am esteeming it not beautiful. Or I know in my heart that this is objectively good or right or smart or wise, but I, wanting to be Lord, am esteeming it ugly or foolish. That's what a broken heart does, a heavy heart. So if your heart is wrong, you're wrong. Pharaoh, the archetype person, he is a man with a broken heart. I don't mean like Hallmark Channel broken heart. I mean like heavy, wrongly functioning heart. I don't know a person who reads this account and doesn't say, what gives Pharaoh? Why don't you give in already? It's common sense. That's a rightly functioning heart saying that. A wrongly functioning heart is going to say, no, I don't think he can do much worse than the flies. Let's see what he can do. Or the Nile. Or the pestilence on the livestock. Or I think this is all a trick by my magicians. Or anything and everything to say anything but Jesus is Lord. A wrongly functioning heart will say, I'm in charge no one else is in charge, and I call the shots. 
But a heavy heart is an enslaved heart. Because when a heart is crooked, and when the heart is the source of all your actions and thoughts and choosing and feeling and doing, you are enslaved to its malfunctioning. If the heart malfunctions, we are slave to its malfunctions. The heart that wants to be king is a slave. Here's, look at, look at here, here's Pharaoh. You almost want to pity him. He's torn. He's being confronted as God speaks to his heart. He's been confronted with truth. The gods of Egypt didn't put him in charge. God says, I raised you up to make my power known to you and through you. There's more mercy to be had there, but it's quite a whopper when God tells Pharaoh, if I wanted to wipe you off, I could have. But I'm actually being merciful and letting you live by letting you see all this stuff. But that's a couple weeks away. But Pharaoh is torn. He's having Yahweh speak to his heart time and time again. He doubles down, triples down, that he will not let the people go. But at some point, he does say, okay, okay, let, get the frogs out of here. Get the flies out of here. Get the hail out of here. You finally get out of here. My first partner aside. At various points, Pharaoh does admit he is not in charge, but there is an eternity between he is not in charge and, well, he kind of is, but I still think I am, to I am nothing in Yahweh's sight. Please have mercy on me. There's a world of difference there. There's a world of difference. Pharaoh wants him gone. He wants him to stay. He's split. He's enslaved. He's enslaved to his own desires. He wants to be king, but he can't be king if Yahweh's king. He wants Israel to stay, but... Yahweh's not going to relent. He is a split man. He is a divided man. And even though he is king of all, he is slave. He is in slavery. Why? Because he's ruled by his heart. And we are all ruled by our hearts. Thus, watch over your heart. Be careful. What, what is the proverb Solomon says that, that trumps all his parenting advice? My son, give me your heart. He knows if he captures his son's heart, he has him. And Yahweh is going at pains to show Pharaoh you are not who you think you are. 
you are no king. You are nothing but a slave. You are just as equal to those slaves down there building those pyramids than anyone else. And one of the greatest deceptions in the world is that we think we're actually in charge when we're actually a slave. We are a slave to sin outside of Christ. Yahweh is showing us the battle isn't about bugs and blood and hail and livestock. And the battle is over the will of man. Will mankind, when confronted with legitimate threats by God, will he surrender? And and nine, eight, seven, the whole Bible <laughs> says it is only by divine grace that we could be moved from out of slavery into sin to actually freedom in Christ. The only way that can happen is not a is not a change in ourselves. It is by the Spirit himself ripping out the old, heavy, stubborn, diamond-hard heart and putting in one that actually responds to God as it's made to. Every single person in this room has a heart. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about the organ. Has a heart and your heart rules you. It does. Your heart rules you. Outside of Christ, it, it ruled you unimpeded. Unimpeded. In Christ, you still know it used to rule you because it still tries to rule you. And even though Christ is dwelling in you and he is ruling you, Every so often, maybe it's every Thursday for you, maybe it's every Sunday morning, maybe if you're like me, it's Sunday through Saturday from 12 a.m. to 12 a.m. <laughs> it still tries to fool you. In a similar way, in a, in a picturesque way, there's a war going on for your heart, just like the judgments on Egypt. Yes, the Christian is secure in Christ. The Christian is loved by Christ. Nothing will separate the Christian from the love of Christ. Assurance, all of that good stuff. Yes. However, we all still have fleshly tendencies which say what God said is good I don't think it is. And what God says is beautiful, I think not. And what God says I should choose, I think better. That is still in us. It doesn't rule us like it's ruling Pharaoh, but it's there. 
And it's, it's at the source of all controversy, war, and sin in our lives. The good news is that even though we came from a place of a heavy heart, a dysfunctional heart, and an enslaved heart, we are not yet what we will be. We are not yet what we will be. We will be in future glorified, sinless. Thank you, Lord. But we are not there yet. And the shepherd of your soul is waging war against you and against the enemy combatants within you. Evil desires, sinful thoughts, and things. And, he, he, and he's, he's shepherding your soul all the way until you get to glory. So what are we taking away from this? Well, we all have a heart. Your heart functions wrongly sometimes. Probably more often than you think. And your heart rules you. If you're in Christ, Christ is ruling you through a, a under construction heart. <laughs> if you're not in Christ, there's no hope except to look to Christ. Because whether you're a Pharaoh, a Cody citizen, or anybody, we are subject to our hearts. If you, you've ever had a spiritual bipolar moment, you've understood experientially what this is. You know what you should do, but you don't want to. You know what you shouldn't do, but you really, really want to. That's a heavy heart. But praise the Lord, he has taken out our heart and put in a heart in which he rules and is responding to him rightly. So who is the free person? Free person is someone in Christ. The free person is someone who, despite the great enslavement in which their heart was reigning and ruling them with, has been dethroned, and Christ sits there now, and he's conquering all our enemies, he's con conquering our fleshly desires, conquering sin, death, and the devil, and everything. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are at your incredible mercy. We are not able to control our heart, to change our heart, to operate upon our heart. We need divine grace. We thank you that you have begun the process which you will finish in the future in the day of Christ Jesus. But I pray for myself and for all my brothers and sisters here that we would be so attentive to our hearts. For from our heart we live. Conquer every rebel power in our heart. Conquer our vices. Imbue us with virtues of love and hope and faith 
gentleness and self-control which would glorify you. And may those new residents of our heart control us and keep us under your Christ, under your shepherd hand. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can stand for